The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwired.org.
Good morning. So today I'm going to be talking about cross-country again, but this time in a different aspect. The last time I talked about it, we talked about how you got to keep running no matter how tired, how ready you want to stop, but you can't. you got to keep going. So we're going to talk about it in a different aspect. Um, before we get started, I want to share a little running info. December 3rd, 2022, in Oregon, the 2022 NXN or Nike Cross Nationals took off. And oh my goodness, it was awesome. I was being a nerd like crazy. Um, uh, I recommend totally watching it. It's on YouTube. Um, but congratulations to my friend Rendon Kaikendall. Uh, I've ran against him many times. He got 29th, and he actually goes to school in Hope Christian here in New Mexico. He's the only New Mexico cross-country athlete committed to a college, and he's going to go to Duke. And so um, he's really awesome. And as much as I could talk about the race all day, I want to talk about the silence. It's crazy. From my biggest race I ever ran with 127 runners to the NXN race with 198, one thing will never change about every cross-country race. So at every big race, there's hundreds of athletes. Because at State, where I ran, there was 3A, 4A, 5A. And everyone's getting ready, and you're at different times, and it is chaotic. Your nerves are racing because it's the big stage. And there's no second shots. It's either state and you're done. You don't get a redo. And so, um, I'm lost. Sorry. And cross country, it's just so much different because it's not like every other sport. With every other sport, you've got that competitiveness, like this team and this team, and they're head to head. I've got friends in every different state, every different part of the state, every different school. It's so awesome. Um, but anyways, so with state, it's kind of crazy. So you have to be waiting till you call it on. So we're all sitting over there, all 4A. We're just kind of waiting, twiddling our thumbs. And then they're like, all right, 4A, come on. And so you get on your whole team, and you only have about like this much to get started. And so you're sitting there, and you do a couple stride outs, get your legs ready to go. And then they're like, all right, so two commands. And then we're going to get going. So you get down. My left leg is hard, so I go like this. have my hand on my watch. Put my head down. Because if you jump the start and you have to restart, you're the weirdo. There's 198. If you're that guy, don't be that guy. So you put your head down, and then everything goes silent. You can't, you could hear a pin drop because everyone is so, like, on edge. It feels like that's an echo. And so... And then it's just 20 minutes of pure pain. Like, I don't know why I did it for five years. It's just painful. But the silence is the most important part of the race. It's a time for the nerves to calm, just chill out. Because it's like, no matter how much craziness has happened, it's that three seconds of just silence. In Psalms 46.10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. Think about how lonely the barn that our Savior was born in. Think about the chaos of the barn. I've been in a few barns in my time, and I think about every one of them has a sense of chaos to it. Think about that barn many years ago on the night or day when Jesus was born, how chaotic it was. That's the Savior of the world was on his way. Mom and Dad couldn't get in a decent indoor room, yet even in the moment, I would almost guarantee that our Savior was being born That barn was silent, and that most important silence in the history of the world. Throughout this next week, I want to challenge you to take moments of silence seriously. Really take those times to calm your nerves and really chill out. In this time of communion, take a moment to just be silent and feel and be still. During communion, I always make sure my eyes are closed. I use the calm and quiet as a time to remember how much God loves me and wants me to be with him. Bow your heads. Our dear, most gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you right now and we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for letting us all come together and celebrate your mighty name. We praise that you make us stay sturdy in your name. We say that we always honor you and be honored to be with you in all that we do throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
would be the hardest part of training for the secret service? I mean, a lot of people would say it's the, you know, will you take a bullet for the guy? In 2018, they had 16,000 applicants for the Secret Service, and only 200 were hired. The application itself is 34 pages long, and if you pass, you ready for this? The written test, the drug test, the vision test, the hearing test, the initial interview, the panel interview, the home interview, and the polygraph, you might get to start the training. And the purpose of the training is to wash you out. They, they want to get rid of, like in a lot of elite training seals and things like that, their purpose is to find out who's going to make it. And if you graduate from Secret Service training, you need to expect your personal life is going to suffer. In some of the articles and, and stories I was reading, one of the guys said this, you, you need to prepare for this, for go sleep for 24 hours, Skip lunch and dinner, stand outside of a house in the rain for at 3 a.m. for several hours, then take a cab to the airport and finally board a plane to a large city for a four, on a four-hour flight. Repeat this regimen for several days in a row. And to make the simulation complete, you also need to fail to attend a child's birthday or a graduation and miss the holidays or your wedding anniversary. Doesn't sound too appealing, does it? But all of them, without fail, said the hardest part is not the training. The hardest part is not will you take a bullet. The hardest part is staying alert. You see, they follow every lead. They check every door. They go through every place prior to a president or whoever they're, they're covering. Would it be easy to lose focus on a job like this? Well, you know, we haven't had a, a gunshot in a long time. It's probably not going to happen here in little podunk wherever. It's probably not. We've already checked everything. Would it be easy to let your guard down? I've used this illustration many times, and I'll continue to use it. What do most of us do when we're at Walmart and a car alarm goes off? You know what most of us do? We just go right on into Walmart. We might reach in our pocket and click, is it mine? No, no I don't really care then. Uh, it would shock us if somebody was actually breaking into a car. We wouldn't know what to do it, we, because we're just so used to those things going off that we don't see it as an alarm. We're in this storyline series. The story of Jesus is told through the stories Jesus tells. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 in a, a really interesting and odd parable today. And I want you to join me with, uh, join with me in, in Matthew 25. If you're online or on the radio, welcome. We're glad you're joining us uh, for this parables series. Now, this one has been studied and preached quite a bit, and you're going to need to have Matthew 25 open. But what if, what if some of the biggest lessons are not just the words that are said? Don't get me wrong. There's some powerful words in these 13 verses. But what if one of the biggest lessons is the setting in which this thing takes place? And then there's one other thing I want you to, take, uh, to think about as we go through this. There is an implied question in this story. It's not asked out loud, but it's implied. And I got a hunch it may be the most important question any of us have ever asked. So I want you to be looking for an implied question, and I want you to be looking for the setting. So join me in Matthew 25. I'm going to read from the New International Version today. Join me in verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us. Instead, you go to, uh, go, instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. 
Well, while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Okay, first, let's talk about the bridegroom or bridesmaids virgins issue here. There's going to be some history that we got to unpack here. And many of your newer versions actually use the word bridesmaid. That's actually a better translation. I struggled with this kind of story growing up. I thought all of these ten were getting ready or it was a competition to figure out which one was going to marry or he was going to marry all ten of them. No, that's not what it was. They were bridesmaids. Now, most of us have been in a wedding with a center aisle, and the bridesmaids usually come in before the bride, right? Well, in this culture, and, and the customs varied from town to town, but the bridesmaids usually accompanied the groom. Now, how this all played out was they would, a guy would like a girl and he would, I I like that one and I kind of want that one. And so he would go to dad and start talking to dad. Now, some of you women are going to get all cringy in the next few minutes and I'm sorry, but I didn't write this stuff. Okay, so don't get mad at me. Get mad at the one who wrote it. This was their culture. And sadly, women were kind of property and I know it, I hate it, but... The, the groom would go to the dad, and they would, uh, they would talk about a price. Yes, I get it. It's awful. Okay? It's called a dowry. All right? Then when they agreed on this, the groom would go off, and he would build a home for the bride. Now, often that was accompanied or attached to his parents' house. Think about that for a moment, if you'd like. And, and they would go back, and he'd build the house, and then he would come. And he would come and he would get his bride. The bride was to be ready and the bride was to be waiting. And the bride's maids had these lamps. Now, they were not lamps like this. They would be akin to our tiki torches, like, like you have in the yard in the summer. That You, you put some oil in there and you light it. Because they didn't have street lights. And they would show the way and everybody would go in. And if you weren't part of that party, you were a wedding crasher. And, and that wasn't cool. Now, to these bridesmaids, again, I don't really like this. I'm just sharing. This was the culture. The bridesmaids would, would come. At, this would be kind of like a debutante ball for the bridesmaids because they couldn't own property. They couldn't climb the corporate ladder of Israel. All right? they, they, their, best get, their best option was to marry well. And so they would get dressed up, and they would get all pretty, and they would be out there so the other guys could see them in this presentation. Now, Jesus says there's five wise and there's five foolish. Some of you are jumping ahead on the metaphor. Don't think that that means half of the world is going to be saved and half the world is going to be lost. What he means here is there are two distinct groups of people. There are people that are prepared, and there are people that are lost. Now let's talk about the oil issue, the oil in the lamp. Lots of ink has been spilled about the oil. And some will say that the oil is the Holy Spirit. I don't know if I like that part of the metaphor because it, it implies that I can run out of the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't know that I, I like that. Now I can run away from the Holy Spirit. We can, you know, we can split that hair later on if we want to. Some have said it's the scriptures and having the scriptures inside us. I don't know. What the oil is per the metaphor, but the important part we need to get is it's what's on the inside that matters. The lamp has to have something on the inside. And to run out of oil for these women would be humiliation. It would be disaster. It would be missed opportunity for weddings. So they go to the store. So the wise, the wise ones say, hey, you go, go to the store. Track with me for a minute. When is this happening? How many 24-hour alsips are in Israel? All right? I I mean, I don't know. So they're going and they're banging on houses. They're trying to go find something. And when they get back, the, the doors are closed. Now, Jesus calls the ones that are not prepared foolish. And he says in other places, don't call somebody a fool. So there's some 
there's, there's some conflict there. All of this history builds into to some of these things, and we're going to try to put all this together in just a minute. But I want you to see something else. Inside the dome of the Capitol in Washington, D.C., is this sign. It is part of a poem from Alfred Lord Tennyson. I'm sorry, this is the best one I could get. It's a little pixelated. It says this, One God, one law, one element, and one far-off divine event to which all creation moves. Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote it in, uh, in a poem called In Memoriam, and it was for his college roommate and best friend who was engaged to his sister and was killed in an accident on his way to come get her. And he writes it in a, a sadness, but he's speaking to the purposes of God in a fallen world. That there is one God, there is one law, and everything to one divine event is pulled. Okay, it's, it's sadness, but it's a broken world. Would anybody argue that point with me, that it's broken? No. And it's talking about the, the goodness of God. And apparently, when you're in the capital and the guide is taking you through, if you ask the question, what is that about? Their answer will be, it refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Marie was up here last week, she shared some thoughts about a devotional that she was going through uh, that talked about the four comings of Christ. And uh, one in creation, that God, God came in creation, God came in the garden, God came in Messiah, the baby. They were expecting a king. They were looking for a king, right? They didn't get a king, they got a baby. And then the fourth one would be all of our collective anticipation of the second coming to complete the story. Now, all of this coming together with this and the, and the Secret Service and all this, let me ask, would it be hard? Would it, would, it be, would it be reasonable to say it's hard to stay alert when we haven't seen him in 2,000 years? Much like the Secret Service, you get into a mode and you just get into, well, it hasn't happened, so maybe it's not going to happen, so I just get into my life. You hear, you tracking? You following with me? We sang that song, we welcome you, all for you. We're making room for your arrival. But he arrived 2,000 years ago. Are we just singing this as a, as a past tense? Or are we welcoming his arrival into our hearts? Now, you and I get it, don't we? I mean, we're in church on a Sunday morning. We, we know. We got the Bible. We got history. So we're prepared, aren't we? We're the church, right? I told you at the outset that one of the biggest lessons might be in the setting of this story. So let's go back and see to whom is Jesus speaking here. Now, if you look down in chapter 25, you're not going to find any reference to where it is. Go back to chapter 24. At the beginning of chapter 24, it says they were first at the temple. So there'd be a lot of people around. But in verse 3, it says he and the disciples went to the Mount of Olives. Now, the temple mounts up here. There's a little valley and then temple, the, the Mount of Olives over here. Garden of Gethsemane is over here. It's I mean, it's not even it's just a few blocks. It's not a journey of any. I mean, it's just just a little bit over there. Now, I get it. I'm just reading the text, and there may have been others there, but the text does not imply or state that there is a crowd there. It really just says that he's talking to his disciples. And you may be sitting there going, I don't get it, Don. I don't get what your point is. Why? Uh, they're always talking, aren't they? But look close at the themes that are being introduced here, at the subject matter. He is telling them to be prepared for the kingdom. He's telling the disciples, the guys that have been with him for three and a half years, they're sold out, they left everything, they want to be with him. He's telling them that they might not be ready. Franklin's song that he wrote, you see me, you know my name, you know everything about me. He knew those guys, he knew them intimately. We've talked before he washed Judas's feet, knowing full well what Judas was about to do. And he is telling his closest friends that the end is coming. And here's my point. I don't see him pointing to the big bad world out there. 
Every time I've ever heard this sermon preached, every time I've heard this particular parable, it's always about, man, those people out there are not prepared. We're the ones that are prepared. We're prepared. But that's not who, to whom Jesus is speaking. He's just telling this parable and these parables to these guys, church folk. I wonder if the implied in between might be, hey, you may think you're in, and you may do all the things that look like you're in, but are you? I mean, seriously, he spends two chapters. Look in chapter 24 and 25. Look at your headers in your text of what are some of the subjects he discusses. He, dis- he talks about being prepared. He talks about being sensible. He talks about being aware of the signs. Having your priorities in order. He talks about how we treat other people. I mean, that whole business in Matthew 25 where he says, uh, when were we hungry? When, when were you hungry, Lord, and we fed you? When were you naked and we clothed you? And he says, when you did it to the least of these. Remember that one? That's at the end of this story here in Matthew 25. All of 24 and 25 is talking about characteristics of wise people. And the choices you and I make, they, they reveal the character that we really have. And I talked about the implied question that is possibly the most important question. There is a phrase that comes up in this parable in verse 12, but it comes up other times in Scripture. In verse 12, he says, after they've knocked on the door, in this version he says, Truly I tell you... I don't know you. I don't know you. Those may be four of the most painful words in all of Scripture. And the implied question is this. Does Jesus really know you? Or maybe even a, an addended, addendum question to that is, do you really know Jesus? Are you really surrendered to Him? Mark Twain once wrote, It's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. (laughs) What he means is, I don't understand all that stuff in Revelation and all that stuff in Ezekiel and Daniel. And he's talking about, this stuff's weird. I don't understand that part. Do you know that part about loving your neighbor? (laughs) That part about forgiving, I know that part, and it's hard. Do we understand that the words of Jesus, that he is speaking to his disciples, but he's speaking for us, and he is speaking to you and I today? And the message of Christmas is not just the tree and the star and the angel. It's not just the coming of the baby. It's the coming that this baby is going to change me. It's going to change my priorities. It's going to change my characteristics. And if Jesus was serious about that, then it's going to take more than church attendance and the right Bible to make a difference. Another phrase where Jesus uses this, I don't know you, is in Matthew chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 22, he he says, many will say to me, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? And he will say, depart, I never knew you. Do we remember this passage? There's a couple of phrases in there that are troubling. One is the word many. He says, many will come to me and say that. And the other one is, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Listen to me now. Those are Church activities, true? Those are, those are church people. Now, take those phrases and match it with that word many, and that should trouble us. Many will come and say, I, I did all this. And he said, no, 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 no. Real faith is not where did you go to church, and real faith is not was I a member of some place and I checked a box. Real faith is proved in our actions in how we forgive, in how we love. And Jesus is telling the guys that are closest to him, that have been walking with him for three and a half years, he's saying, you better be ready. You better be prepared. And you better realize that it's more than going. It's being in his presence. 
me see if I can illustrate it this way. Imagine you were given a diagnosis. Imagine your doctor calls you and says, hey, man, we need to have talk done. Uh, this, this is bad, all right? You're just, you're, you're, everything's wrong, and you're going to die. This is a terminal condition, and you're not going to make it. You only have a few hours left unless you take this pill, and you need to take it every night right before bedtime. This pill, that's it. If you don't, you'll go to sleep and you won't wake up. If that is your diagnosis, let me ask you this. How often are you going to forget to take that pill? Uh, Once. (laughs) That's what my son said last night. (laughs) He ain't wrong. Uh, How, uh, I mean, uh, would would that not orient your whole day? I mean, you better stay out of my way when it comes bedtime between me and the, the medicine cabinet. Uh-uh, no, nobody gets in my way. How important would that be? How important would it be? Would it, would it slip our mind? Would we overlook it? Would we not get around to it? I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but friends, if we don't know Jesus, if we aren't personal with him, we don't walk with him every day, we are not going to make it. It is that serious. This is more than church attendance. It's drawing close to this baby. It's more than just singing the songs of the season. It's walking through this season and having his joy and, and staying with it and running that race. One of the lines in that song, King of Kings, from a throne of endless glory to a manger in the dirt. Man, that's a great line. That is a powerful line. He gave up endless glory to come and be in the dirt with you and I to change us so that we didn't look like the world. The baby is coming to make a change. But there's another issue that this parable raises, and it's the issue of waiting. Now, in this one, it says in verse 5, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. In another version, NLT, when I was studying, it says the bridegroom was delayed. I don't think when he says delayed, it means he forgot it was his wedding day. Uh, I'll be there in just a minute, but there's only two minutes left in the game. Let me finish this, and then I'll be down there. I don't think it was he was waiting for Sports Center. I, I think he... There were some things that got in the way. Now, maybe the house took a little longer to build. Maybe when he got back to, to talk to Dad, there was, uh, maybe there was a little more dowry than Nia. Hey, well, she's gotten prettier since you've gone, been gone. Now she's three cows and a chicken. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what the price is, but, you know, but maybe there was one of those. But there was some kind of delay. And I need you to know this, and some of you are jumping ahead on the metaphor here, and, and I think the metaphor is very easy. What he, Delayed means he was not working on the bridesmaid's time. Okay, follow me on the metaphor. If Jesus is the groom, the bride is the church, the body of Christ, and we're not working on our time, we're working on his time. And that's hard because... What happens? What happens when, there's, when there is waiting? What do you do in the waiting? Can the Holy Spirit work in, in your season of waiting? What happens to our road if God's answer is delayed? Does our faith, do we just, well, he didn't answer my prayer. I'm not going back to church. We've heard people say stuff like that, haven't we? And and let's be honest, how many of us have said in the last couple of years, I wish he'd just come right now. Anybody else? I wish wish he'd just hurry up and come. We've all said that. We see all of the damage. We see all of the problems. Just hurry up and come. Why isn't he coming? Why isn't he here right now? Because he's not working on our time. And waiting is used all throughout scripture as one of god's tool titus 1 verse 3 says at just the right time he came for us at just the right time that shows up a lot in scripture god uses waiting to make changes in us hannah was a a woman that was childless and she begged and she pleaded with god for a child i'll give it back to you 
What was she? What was God doing in her waiting for that child? He was growing her. So when that child got there, her faith was enough to give that child right back. What about the Israelites to Canaan? Do you realize that from Egypt to Canaan is about a 10-day walk? And they were out there 40 years. It wasn't that they got lost and they needed GPS. They were sent out in the desert for, or the wilderness for 40 years, a year for every day you doubted me. So what was God doing in that time? He was getting some junk out. He was getting some people out and some mindset out. He was growing them in the desert. I love this statement, but it's hard. God is never late, and he is rarely early. Anybody? Well, let me ask you this. Is this a weekly struggle for anyone? Amen. And we can sit in church and say, oh, but waiting, God is working working on us and it's a a beautiful thought but when you are the one that's waiting god's perfect timing can seem like torture when you're waiting on that child you're waiting on that spouse you're waiting on that child to come back home you're waiting on that job or that healing or that you know what i'm saying whatever it is that you're waiting on can god work in you See if you recognize this verse. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Anybody recognize this? We sing it. His government and its peace will never end. When Isaiah is saying this, he's saying, Everything is bad out here. Destruction is coming, but God brings hope. Problem. He said that about a baby, that his name, a child is born to us. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That was written 700 years before the baby got there. 700 years? How well would you wait after 700? What about 682? What about year 682? Does anybody just throw up a white flag in there and go, this is ridiculous. We've waited and waited and waited. This is not... You hearing me? Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Ends with God saying, I have always loved you, says the Lord. And then 400 years of silence. Well, I don't believe God was silent. I believe he was speaking to people. But there's 400 years of written silence. There is, there's not a clear message. And then the next words you hear are, hey, there's going to be a baby. I'm, I'm saying all this to see if this makes sense we are waiting. How easy for us is it to give up? Because it's been 2,000 years since he said, I'm coming back. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Uh, well, it hasn't happened. You know what? I got my kids. I got, I got to work on my business. I got to just get about my life. This is, I, I'll get to Jesus later. You hearing me? You see, the, the story of this baby the tree and the, and the star and the angel and the songs and the family. It's not just all of that. It's, it's about our minds getting prepared. Our minds and our eyes getting completely focused on he might come today. I need to tell somebody about him because he is the answer. Amen. February 10th of 2013, a fire broke out in the engine room of the Carnival Triumph. If you're about to go on a cruise, you should probably not listen to this next part. Because it's going to really, really scare you. Uh, no, um, and we, we got lots of stories like this. But this one, this fire was, it broke out in the engine room, but it burned up the electrical room and knocked out the power for 4,200 uh passengers and crew and left them adrift in the gulf of mexico you know like oh well that's no big deal can't they go get it well that's no little dinghy out there all right you can't run out there with your fishing boat and throw a line on it all right they gotta get it right kind of and and those aren't just those kind of tugboats aren't just laying around somewhere so they had to get around to it and they they were okay and they had were they had radioed back but they they didn't have any power on the boat no power means no toilets. No power means no AC in the tropical sun. No power means no refrigeration for the food that is on the, the ship. 
And there were reports of long lines for the food they had, shortages of fresh water, illnesses, boredom, anger. I mean, little rage. Could, there, could, could you see that happening? Many people slept in hallways or outside to escape the odor or the heat below decks because it just, there was nothing to circulate the air. It was so hot. Now, all is well. They finally ported in Mobile, Alabama. They were able to, to get some tugboats and pull it in, and they floated towards Alabama, and they got in there, and everybody was rescued. But it was four days later. Four days. Now, we've heard stories about what happened in... Texas last year when they lost power for a few days and pipes burst and and there was coal. And we've got all kinds of stories about it. But this kind of thing and those kind of stories should remind us. They should be, those, those ordeals should be clear reminders of what it's like to be disconnected from power. To be disconnected from the God that gives power. You see, the story of Advent, the story of the baby it's not just seasonal. It's a story of hope. So come. Though you have nothing, come. He is the offering. Come see what your God has done. Christ is born for us. This baby comes to change you and I. It's a story that has been told, but needs to continue to be told. Would you pray with me? Father God, too many times I have gotten busy in my world, seen my agenda, and I've overlooked how important this story is. Prepare our hearts, Father. Open up the eyes of our heart that we may see your glory. Help us to see the urgency of the gospel, the need to talk about it today to someone and be reminded to be prepared. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.